All right, the NBA Finals continue tonight. Game three at Miami. Out to the KDUS hotline we go. We're now joined in the sports zone by Clay Ferraro of TV10 in Miami. And Clay, good to have you on the show. The Heat obviously bounced back in game two. Uh, they handed Denver uh, its first home loss of the postseason. Michael Malone placed uh, the blame on uh, his team's effort, but the Heat did make 17 of 35 threes. Uh, so for you, what was the biggest reason the Heat won game two? Uh, make or miss league, right? I mean, you hit the, the open yeah. looks that you missed in, in game one. And, you know, I felt like in game one there were plenty of opportunities as well. And I know there was the, the narrative coming out of that that, um, you know, Denver looked like the superior team, and, and I get all that. And yet, I think if you follow the Heat enough, we, we've heard this every single series. Oh, the other team is doing this wrong. Um, and, and it's not really a, an inferiority complex sort of thing, because if we're being honest, none of us saw this coming either. Nobody down here outside of the, the building on Biscayne Boulevard expected this team to be in the NBA Finals. And yet, if you follow this team through every series – the same thing is said in, in some form or fashion over and over again. It's, oh, Milwaukee didn't do this. Oh, New York needs to do this. Oh, Boston needs to do. So at a certain point, it's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe they're just hitting the shots that they missed all year, and uh, there's a chance this ride continues. But they were a good three-point shooting team last year. They might have even been number one in the NBA. So they the same guys, for the most part, have made those shots before. I'll get to Jimmy Butler, I swear, soon here. But I want to start with Bam Adebayo as far as the individuals go. What has impressed you most about Bam during his time with the Heat? The fact that he impacts winning no matter what his stat line says. And, you know, I, I, I'll i say this about him, the same thing I said about Chris Bosh, because uh, I got here towards the end of the big three run. He helps me learn more about basketball. And, you know, when you watched – Chris Bosh, it was the underappreciated stuff, the switching, the ability to contest as a big man. And you watch Bam Adebayo, and I remember his first, second year in the league, some of the stuff that would happen when he would get switched off onto the best perimeter offensive players in the league. I mean, you, you would see him one-on-one -on -one against Steph Curry and, and shutting him down. You know, obviously not for long stretches, but somebody that size isn't supposed to do that. So even when he's not scoring – He's finding a way to impact the game in, in a massive way, whether it's passing. He's a phenomenal defender, can guard one through five. You know, you're not going to want him to, uh, although in this series he probably has to, kind of lean on Nikola Jokic. He's done a, a great job of at least making things somewhat difficult on him. But then he comes down on the other end, and, and he's essentially playing the role of point center. That's uh, what John Calipari kind of uh, kind of dubbed it. And it's just amazing to see game in and game out, People who maybe just look at the stat lines don't understand the way he impacts the game. But, I mean, he's, he's phenomenal and just a great dude, great team guy, and, and everything you would want. Eric Spolser wouldn't say that the strategy was make Jokic a scorer. What's the Heat's best way to try to you know, limit uh, Jokic? To so, you know, limit in quotes here. <laughs> Hey, well, what's funny is, you know, I mentioned learning more about, about the game, and, and I think what he said was, was actually accurate. And if you go back, and, and I like to, to listen to people like you know, Steve Jones and, and Nikias Duncan and people who kind of break down the X's and O's stuff in ways that I could never understand it. But basically saying what the Heat did is just throw a variety of looks at him and them. Because you're not just trying to shut down Nikola Jokic. You're trying to 
find a way to disrupt the cuts, disrupt uh, the, the passing lanes. And it's not just a matter of Jokic making the right read. It's a matter of his teammates making the right read as well. And if you're throwing different things at them over and over again, you know, everybody said, and I was in this group, that, oh, you can't play zone against them. Well, guess what? Fourth quarter, they played a bit more zone. They did it a little bit differently, and it threw off what Denver was doing. So I think it's, it's a matter of you throw enough curveballs, you throw enough change-ups to just try to disrupt that offense a little bit. So it's not just about how you attack Jokic. It's, okay, how, how are we going to make them just – a little bit, maybe a half second late when they cut, maybe uh, uh, three feet off of where they're supposed to be on the three-point line because they think you're in a certain coverage and, and you're in a different coverage. I, I, honestly, I think Denver flat out admitted that, that, that the Heat throw certain actions, certain coverages offensively and defensively that other teams don't do. And so it's a matter of over the next five games, will Denver adjust enough to that and figure it out? They certainly have the talent. Um, but it's going to be a real fun chess match to watch over the next few games. Clay Ferrero, TV 10 in Miami, currently in the sports zone. On to Jimmy Butler. Uh, yeah, he didn't have a scoring explosion on Sunday night, but his defense on Jamal Murray I think was a big reason for the Heat win. What stands out to somebody who sees Butler from like the first day of training camp to now the NBA Finals? Just an insane, maniacal competitor. And, and just the way that, and they say this all the time, the Miami Heat do, we're not for everybody. Well, I think we've seen in Jimmy Butler's different stops, he's not for everybody. But something that Dwayne Wade said uh, before Jimmy Butler came here, I thought really rang true because the two of them are great friends. He said, Jimmy Butler is crazy, but Eric Spolster is also crazy. Pat Riley is also crazy. Uh, and they're crazies <laughs> mixed. And I think that's the thing with this group is, you know, you hear a lot about the Heat culture thing. Heat culture is not like people show up in the building and like magically you transform into someone or, or something that you're not. What they do first and foremost is they go out and they, they try to find people who are competitors. And so when they get in the building and you have people who are, are barking at you and cursing at you, can you take it the right way? Can you use that to, to be motivated and become the best version of yourself? And so I think with Jimmy Butler, it was okay. You know, when he was in Minnesota and Philadelphia, I think he felt like, and he said this, that he couldn't necessarily always be himself there. Maybe people took it the wrong way. I think here he's, he's with a group of like-minded people. And all you have to do is go back to last year when he and Eric Spolstra nearly came to blows during the middle of a game. I mean, they're screaming at each other, walking mm. out to half court. Udonis Haslam is having to separate them. But, you know, everybody's, it's a family. You know, I mean, it's like, you yell at your brother, and, and I think there is a, a willingness with everybody, and this starts with Jimmy Butler, to kind of remove your ego as far as if somebody is going to yell at you and tell you something for the sake of competition. You, you're all pulling in the same direction, and you want to win. And I think, you know, you can look at the 56 points and, and all the stuff that he's done, but I think more than anything else, he kind of sets the standard for competitiveness in that, in that locker room, and everybody else follows too. From afar, it seemed that Jimmy might be running on fumes after the historic or during the historic Eastern Conference playoff run. Tonight's just the Heat's fourth game since May 29th. Is he uh, you know, refueled, so to speak? I, I think the ankle's an issue. I really do. And, you know, you go back, he got hurt in game one of the Knicks series, and it was a really, really ugly-looking ankle injury. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, he came back, and yet he didn't look himself in the rest of that series. 
he he looked better in game one against Boston. Game two, he was a non-factor offensively until Grant Williams got in his face in the fourth quarter. And honestly, beyond that, you haven't seen the same level of explosion. You haven't seen the, the touch around the rim. So I think it's fair to speculate, even though he would never tell you this, that the ankle is limiting him somewhat. And yet it's limiting him more as far as his explosiveness near the basket and, and his ability to get the, the lift on the jump shot. It's not impacting him as much defensively. So you, you mentioned at the outset the defense that he played on Jamal Murray. That's where he's still able to, to dictate the terms of the game. That, cutting into passing lanes and making things difficult. Offensively, you know, he and Bam both command so much attention. Bam just as much for his, his passing and the dribble handoffs and stuff like that. Jimmy, like, you have to know where he is regardless. So I think what he's done really well the first couple of games, and in particular in game two, was, okay, when they're throwing a lot of attention my way, and, you know, when KCP is, is lagging off of, of Gabe Vincent or Max Struess in the corner, I can kick it over there. So he can still make the right basketball play, but I think absolutely the explosion is not there. And honestly, I don't know if it's going to return between now and the NBA Finals. They're just going to have to find a way to, to win without it. Spolster uh, seems, uh, you know, sometimes even like offended when the media b- brings up the undrafted players that are key contributors here. So instead of, you know, asking, you know, you know about the undrafted players, how, how has the Heat player development plan been so effective? Well, I, look, I, I understand where Spolster is coming from on that, but I also, I also think, uh, me like covering it and and coming in you know like I said I came here about 10 years ago but you know you can still come in with kind of an outside view of it it is cool and it is a cool lesson to I think from a national perspective people bring it up because it's like so unique so I, I understand what Spo was saying where it's disrespectful to the players to keep bringing it up but if you're just introducing the world to this team and they don't have a LeBron James. They don't have a Steph Curry. Jimmy Butler is certainly getting uh, more and more known, and, and Bam Adebayo maybe one day will we'll get the type of recognition that, that we feel he deserves. But you know, if you hear the, hear the name Gabe Vincent and, and Caleb Martin, and like these guys have really cool stories, but, but the origin story of it all is they weren't drafted. And, and to me, I think it's okay to start with that. To your question about the, uh, the development, honestly, I, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I think it's about finding the right kind of people first. The people that, when you get them in the building, and I don't even know how, like, if there's, if there's like a, uh, uh, what do you call it, a wonderlick or a, uh, you know, what's what's the new the, the new test they give NFL quarterbacks at the draft? It's like the new, I don't yeah. know what it is, how you find these these people like like Caleb Martin, Duncan Robinson, Gabe Vincent, Max Strews, uh, on down the line, that when they get in the building, they're just going to have that maniacal competitive mindset to where, they're going to want to be in the gym for five hours after practice ends and do everything possible to, to make themselves better. So, you, look, I, I don't think the Heat have reinvented the wheel as far as development and stuff like that. What I think they've done so well is target people who are, are not just willing, but like craving the type of teaching and, and coaching that, that goes along with, with joining this organization. And then they give them the resources to make the most of, of all of it and become the best version of themselves. Talking Heat with Clay Ferraro of TV10 in Miami. Uh, more Spolstra, who certainly seems to get the most out of his roster. Why is he such a good coach? I think there's a, 
something that goes along with being there for a long time, being able to speak the same language. And, um, you know, I think also having players who buy in. I think all of that is a big part of it. But I do think, like, you have to give him credit. There's nobody who works harder. There's nobody. Like, his recall with certain things, and uh, uh, people were talking about this after game two, where, like, he can just randomly at the beginning of the fourth quarter of, a, of the NBA Finals in game two, when you're down by eight, you can just recall an action that worked with Gabe Vincent and Duncan Robinson. Put those guys out there on the floor at the beginning of the fourth quarter and said, okay. We're down by eight, but you know what? You two are going to lead this comeback at the beginning of the fourth quarter because I'm sure Denver wasn't even looking at this on film, and they're not going to know quite what to do. And so his ability and his confidence in his players to kind of recall those moments from the past, it's, it's stuff like that that it's not just a schematic thing. It also instills a level of confidence in those guys that, hey, no matter what's happened, the Duncan Robinson is a perfect example of a guy who was out of the rotation. He was not playing at all. But then you bring him back in the uh, the NBA playoffs for this, this crazy ride, and all of a sudden his career is revived. It's that kind of confidence in your guys, and they look at you and they say, okay, well, if this great coach has that kind of confidence in me, then, yeah, maybe I can go out there and score 10 points in you know two minutes and mean mug for the camera in the fourth quarter of the NBA Finals like, like Robinson did. I, I just think it all kind of flows together. Yeah, prior to the last couple of seasons, I wondered some if Spolster was writing on the advice of Pat Riley. How much input does Riley still have on a daily, like, strategical basis? Well, they talk every day. Um, and, you know, from from our understanding, they get into the same sort of heated conversations that, that Jimmy Butler and Spoke get into. But it's all done in, in the right sort of way where they come out and, and Spoke – like, don't mistake that. The, the the level of respect and reverence that Spo has for Pat Riley is is enormous. And yet, when you know LeBron James and and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh reportedly went up to Pat Riley's office the first year together, uh, and and were kind of hinting, hey, so do you want to come out of retirement and coach again? And and Riley said, <laughs> nope, Spo's your coach. Like, it's that sort of confidence that he's instilled in Spo that Spo can come right back at him and say, now, nah, you know what? Your old school way of, of playing a bunch of big guys together, that doesn't work anymore. So let me do my thing. <laughs> We're going to go out there and play positionless. And it's hard to argue with the results at this point. So, I, yes, there is still a lot of consultation literally every day. Um, and, and yet I would say it's, it's safe to say that it is Spo's team on the floor like Riley certainly helps put it all together Andy Ellisberg is phenomenal their their front office is great and yet on the floor it's it's Spoh's show and and what he says goes ultimately Tyler Hero remains out with the broken hand uh, what do they miss most without him and how has the offensive uh, emphasis changed during his absence so it, it Specific to this series, what they're missing is having another pull-up guy against Denver's drop coverage. You know, if, if you have, uh, if you're playing against Boston, for example, when they're switching everything and they're not playing quite as much drop, I don't think you miss Hero as much. It's more important to have the ball rotation, the movement, spot-up shooters, and, and all of that. What he would bring if and when he does come back, and we have to, like, he has to be 100% healthy. You can't just throw a a 70% healthy Tyler Hero back into the mix in the NBA Finals. It's just the game's moving too fast, and he's going to get isolated on guys. 
you have to pick your spot. But it's it's when things get in the mud a little bit and they need somebody just kind of go on a personal 6-0 run to, to kind of give them either a little separation if they're winning or close the gap if they're down. Uh, that's, that's where you would need him. The other thing is, look, I, we talked about Jimmy Butler. His usage has just gone through the roof since Tyler, Tyler Hero got hurt. Like, as, as great as Jimmy Butler is, there's only so much in the bag, right? And so if he's having to constantly go to the same moves over and over again, and I really think we saw this in the Boston series, that, you know, eventually Derek White and, and Grant Williams and uh, Jalen Brown kind of figured out some of the things he was trying to do. So there's going to be a point where Jimmy's going to need somebody else to come in and, and take over some of that some of that usage. And, again, that's where Tyler would come in if, if he's 100% healthy. What are a couple things we should look for tonight in Game 3? Shooting. Uh, you know, it's, it's really that simple. And, look, it's, you can certainly, if you're Denver, point to, okay, we left guys wide open here. We can clean this up. We can clean that up. Miami has to find a way, even, even when Denver plays really tight coverage, they have to hit those shots or they have to find the right slips, the right cuts, things like that. And I'm speaking more from an offensive perspective because I think if you look back, in the home games in particular for Miami, and I'm, I'm thinking mostly about game three of the Boston series, even though they lost the next two at home, it, very early on they come out and they set the tone. And it was Kevin Love hitting a few big shots early, uh, then Max Struess. And, you know, the, the old saying, the old adage, role players play better at home, stars have to carry you on the road. I'm looking tonight to see early on, does Caleb Martin get back into a, a rhythm? And I think it's pretty clear that, that his illness was really impacting him in game two. Jared Greenberg said he was sitting there at, the, at his locker with, his, with a towel over his head and he was getting chills and had migraines. They need, they need a performance from him similar to what we saw in the Boston series. Or they need Gabe Vincent to keep doing what he's done. Or they need, Max, they need two of the other guys, I think, to have big games in addition to Jimmy and Bam. Uh, and, and they need to keep playing the same level of defense and and throwing curveballs at, at Denver offensively and finding ways to, you know, maybe just make Denver think a little bit because they're such a great offense and everything is, when they're clicking, man, they're a well-oiled machine. you got to just find a way to throw them off their game just a touch, mess with their timing just a little bit, um, you know, and just find a way. And that's what they've done uh, 13 times so far. And, and if they do it three more times, I think it's probably the best underdog story in, in NBA history. Thanks, Clay. This has been great. We appreciate the time. Anytime, Bob. Take care. All right. Thank you very much. Clay Ferraro of TV 10 in Miami.